0: welcome back to netflix and kill the podcast dedicated to reviewing and documenting the horror films of netflix today we are so honored to have a special guest on our podcast uh, we have fritz kirsch the director of children of the corn for anyone who missed our review last week you can check that out it's up on our podcast feeds we watched the movie and chatted about it and uh, spoiler alert we really loved it <laughs> So, um, Fritz, would you like to tell our guests a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for allowing me a little time to share some things with everybody and and your um, uh, listenership. Is that a word? Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, let's get back to the idea that or the concept of you all watching the film collectively and um, coming up with a good comment about it. Or is that really true?
0: Yes, yes, it is. You can listen you can listen to our episode if you want to.
1: I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to listen in and see what the comments were. I say that because uh, a couple of weeks ago I did a, a fan convention and a couple of the actors from the film, um the scary actors, uh and I gave a commentary as a group watched the film about oh, 100 people or so and we talked about different um anecdotes and things that happened and so forth. And listening to the audience's response to events was fun. So I have a different opinion of the film now. So that's it. But um, in answering your question, um I uh, started in films when I was in university. I got very excited about it way back in the 70s and um, wanted to do that but wasn't sure how to do it and ended up getting myself after graduating from university to Los Angeles where I got some um, entry-level positions uh, with companies making TV commercials that then later allowed me to explore uh, a lot of the technical aspects of the process that then allowed me through some devious means, my own devious means to kind of worm my way in to larger productions. And uh, eventually uh, I started producing commercials. I was shooting commercials, directing them. I had my own company um, with a business partner. We made commercials for a Target-like retail um, company. I did a huge volume of work that eventually led us to getting into feature films. Uh, People that we had worked with as we made these commercials became uh, active in larger arenas of motion picture work, particularly feature films. And everyone wanted to get into the feature film business in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. So we jumped at it, and uh, our first opportunity was Children of the Corn. So it opened the door for me to get into the theatrical arena and then episodic television and, and further forms of um, television product or media product. And it's it was, it was a lot of fun. It was great. So I did that for a lot of years and then somehow moved into becoming an educator. And uh, that kind of brings us up to today.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's how uh, we met you. <laughs> you were, um, at least for me, my professor in college.
1: We're connected. Podcasts do those funny things; they connect to everybody. It's great. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad we have the time to chat. Let's talk about things.
0: Yeah. All right. So, our first question for you: We're just going to dive right into talking about Children of the Corn. Uh, what was your biggest obstacle that you overcame during the filming process?
1: There, there were many, many obstacles in making that film, but I, I must say that many of them were from misjudgments, miscalculations, um, naivete, um, eagerness, and, and just straightforward passion to make a motion picture. If that sounds um, wrong or oxymoronic, how can you be passionate and you make misjudgments? It, it all works together to cause huge problems. <laughs> but we, my business partner and I, were given this opportunity Um, almost as we were given opportunities and contracts to make television commercials, which were literally awarded one day and the next day you went to work on them. We undertook uh, the opportunity literally uh, a few hours after we were granted the deal, and we were out looking for locations. And we employed a lot of the people with whom we had made television commercials who had the same passion for making film and the same passion to to do things differently and uniquely. So none of us really had great depth in a motion picture, a theatrical motion picture project. We were in the short form world, uh, rock videos and um, television commercials and um, informational products and, and short things, even short documentaries. So we jumped into it, kind of going into the deep end of the pool Uh, instead of swimming our way to the deep end of the pool. So that naivete and our excitement to do it caused problems when it came to making decisions like, let's film in this particular location. And then not thinking that that location would change uh, its look because of the seasons two months later. And specifically, we chose cornfields that were blush and green and huge and beautiful, and they were just seas of green and, and great corn and healthy product in july only to come back when we filmed uh, in early september to find them dead and useless vi- uh, you know, visually useless for the film so that was a huge obstacle um it was an obstacle working with the children that is the age group of the cast caused us to consider how to mechanically shoot the film there are laws about employing children or that govern the employment of children that limit their use and time on sets and what they can do and what they cannot do and who has to be with them so a lot of discoveries were made when it came down to trying to put all oh four kids together in a shot only to find out two of them had not had enough school time offset so they were unavailable. So we had to use other means to make the scene work. And, and, and the weather itself was really cold. It was really bitter at night. Lots of the film, as you know, is in darkness. It's at night. when The, the spooky things happen out in the fields where we don't know what's going on. So there were a lot of, uh, of factors that combined to it. But on the good side... Those factors and those problems were overcome just through the passion and desire by all of us to make a really fun film, and we had a great time. It was a short schedule, but it was a it was a it was a sprint to do something really good. So, the good and the bad—they all mixed together.
0: Yeah, that is awesome. Um, yeah, I can imagine. I didn't think about the issues you might have had with location. Where where uh, specifically they, they were, they were did terrible. you sh- uh, shoot it?
1: We were in um, Sioux City, Iowa, as a base camp. Now, this is where it gets a little bit more fun to make things more complicated. The Sioux City, of course, is a metropolitan area. Uh, adjacent to it are uh, the, the farms, the open landscape of um, agricultural America. And so we traveled, oh, up to 50 miles each day to go to a separate small town that had a unique aspect to it that was great for the film. There was no small town or um, farm community that had everything that the script asked to um, be included or that was required by the script. So there were about four or five different small towns that were editorially assembled through cutting pieces that made it look like one town. So we would use one or two streets in one place. The next day, we would go 30 miles to another small town, and we'd use a few buildings in that town. And then on the fourth day or fifth day or the following week, we would be in a, a third town or in a fourth town. So we were always moving like a little caravan to these locations, um, kind of opening up the business and becoming a production entity on the street of these little towns over which we had great control. The the leadership of the town allowed us all kinds of space and room and they were very elastic about keeping the people off the street and everything was really, really well-received. We were well-received. So that became a problem. Sioux City was a great place to go to every night. The hotel, the Howard Johnson's or whatever it was. But... We had to get up at five in the morning, get in the cars and drive all up to an hour to get to our location. And then when the sun would set, back in the cars, drive again, and we'd get back at nine, ten o'clock at night and um, try to eat then wake up again at 530. So Sioux City, Iowa, great place.
2: I actually grew up uh, an hour away from Sioux City, Iowa. That's my home state.
1: Oh, ah, well, then you know Salix and Horning and Whiting. These little towns that are in that corner of the state and also the wonderful people that live there, their generosity and hospitality was fantastic.
2: Oh yeah, Iowa Nice, we try.
1: <laughs> we try.
3: So the next question, um, what was the most fun part about shooting children of the corn?
1: Well, you know, even though I spoke of the difficulties and our enthusiasm. It was also a lot of fun. Watching um, the imagined come to life is always fun. Thinking about things as you read them, that is the printed text of the narrative, the script, and thinking, visualizing, what could this look like? And then you're actually in a place where you can make that visually happen, physically happen. You can get your imagination on a, on a recording, on film. That's a lot of fun to see the actors go through and do the things that they are given, which are not theirs. That's not the way people, those people, those actors speak. That's not their house. That's not their clothes. That's not anything that's real. But yet when we took all these false things, these false values and behaviors and put them together, it's exciting and it's fun to watch it all look real and, and to believe that it's really going on. So that was, that was just great. And I love the lighting of the film. I loved all that technical process, but I also really enjoyed the idea of creating this verisimilitude of, uh, of a reality that none of us really ever face or hopefully will ever face. But the what if of, if it did happen, what would it be like? And so we got to play that out. It was a lot of fun.
0: That sounds fun.
1: Well, all motion pictures are fun in that way, because someone has an idea, um, and uh, everyone commits to creating that idea. And it, it is a lot of fun. It's a lot of camaraderie and a, and a lot of um um contribution by people that you uh really don't know very well who surprise you in their skill set in making these great contributions and and bringing up the the value of everything beyond what you may have thought as uh, what might be important they make it much much better that's great that just builds a lot of friendships it really builds a family Film, films tend to be these great families of of friendships that start and continue on for years after you make the film.
0: I can definitely say the same, um, even just for our podcast. I mean, we all met in film school, and uh, we've had this project going for close to three years now, and uh, it's just been a lot of fun.
1: Oh, it it is. When you make things together, you all have something that you've shared. It's a mutual experience. It's really good. And it's fun. Making movies is a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work.
2: What were your feelings about Stephen King and Children of the Corn before you made the film, and how did they change during filmmaking, and how have they changed in the years since its initial release?
1: Hannah, darling, that's the longest question I've ever been asked. <laughs> 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 you got 17 questions there. Let's, let's um, see what we can do in answering all of them uh, in a nice way. I never met Stephen King In the planning or in the production or in the execution, the post-production or even during the marketing and the exhibition of the film, our paths never cross. My understanding of his involvement in the film came from his original screenplay derived from his novella and his efforts to make that original screenplay that did not ever come together in Hollywood. And others, other production companies, that is some production companies, saw an opportunity to make a film, but not use that script. So that probably put him on notice that whatever was going to happen to his script was not gonna to be to his liking because it wouldn't be what he originally wrote. Hollywood notoriously changes everyone's work to satisfy some, somebody's aesthetic. And in this case, the studio who put the money up had a belief that this story that Stephen King wrote would be a wonderful uh, horror film for a certain age group, young boys between about 13 and 18 and young girls between about maybe 14 and 17, 18. So the ideas of what were in the film were designed to attract that interest group and those age groups very specifically, what scares that age uh, uh, person What what, what are those people like? What do they want? So things were modified from his script to adapt to the audience's, um, I don't know, fears, desires, wants, uh, expectations. So we never got a chance to talk about the film, what it could be, the story and, and the making of the film, what it could be, nor what it was when it was finished. I was allowed to read a letter that the studio received from him, and he was not happy with the outcome of the film. He didn't believe it was any good. He didn't like the portrayal of his uh, characters, his protagonists, because it didn't deal with the same messages and the same um, foci that he had written about. So, you know, adults and their problems with um, relationships and kind of stress of post war Vietnam issues. Our film dealt a lot with. Um, Dogma and following a particular voice and should we as, um, should the audience believe what they hear? Should they not learn to question and challenge authority? That's what the film's really all about. So different points of view from the very beginning caused him to not like things and that's why his letter was not very praising of the film. And in the years past, I never got a chance to ever meet him and uh, even have a conversation to talk about it. I was a couple of years ago in near Pittsburgh and saw a poster in the window in a bookstore announcing that he would be there signing books. And so I got excited and I, Oh, it's Saturday the 13th or whatever the date was. So I, got, I went back on Saturday the 13th, hoping he would be there and I could introduce myself and have a conversation only to find out that the poster was about two years old when they moved the <laughs> oh, books that were in front no. of the, So I could see the actual date, but maybe one day it'll happen. Um, but I still think what he does and how he's developed uh, this area of horror, making it even more popular than it ever was, is just really truly admirable. I mean, he's he's a he's a king, so to speak, in in all of this, and he he's well aware of what he's done for the industry of horror and film and entertainment, uh, and uh, the challenge of all those things. So. I I think he's terrific. Plus, he likes rock and roll and he plays guitar, so that's okay with me.
2: I never knew that. (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
3: That's one thing I didn't know about Stephen King.
1: He has been, um, yeah, he's played around. Um, I've seen pictures of him with his band rehearsing and playing. And I know he goes out and he he plays, um, I don't know, I guess locally in the area in which he currently lives in Maine or wherever he lived. I think he's still in Maine. I'm not sure. But yeah he's he's a rock and roller at heart.
2: do you play any instruments?
1: Oh, I try, but I, I I can't say I can play it. I'm still a student forever and ever and ever, trying to learn how to play jazz guitar. It's just impossible. My fingers don't do what they're told to do. something's wrong, but it's, it's it sounds like i'm I'm great though. I sound like Joe Pass to myself, at least in the mirror. I look like Joe Pass <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you consider yourself to be a horror fan? And do you have any favorite horror
1: films? This sounds like the one question I recall from when I was interviewed um, for the film itself. As you know, when you go in for a, a job opportunity for a project, you talk to a number of people and they have questions about you and what your thoughts are and how you might treat their material and what you would do with the script and how you can make it unique and so forth. And when... I went in to meet, which turned out to be just one person, uh, the one of the lawyers who had just recently in partnership bought the library. Uh, they bought the name New World from Roger Corman, not his library of films, but they bought the company name so they could start their own company, New World Pictures. When I met this individual... Um, we talked a little bit about the story and what I might do with it except, you know, the conventional and expected questions. But the question he did ask, it's the one you asked. So who is your favorite horror film director? What are your favorite horror films? He wanted to know if I really understood the genre and so forth. And so I just remember talking about, um, Dawn of the dead and, uh, you know, that seminal, um, film, George Romero's seminal horror film. And, yeah, I liked it. I liked it for its simplicity and the rawness and the idea that it kind of hit a lot of nerves on uh, for me as a viewer when I was a kid. And I, that was enough. So I'll still stick with that. But, I'm, but I'll am but also add that even though Romero was really one of the great, I don't know, early, well, I'd say postmodern horror films in the genre, in the cheap B-movie genre, there are some others like the silent film directors Murnau and and others that make great horror films that uh, people use as um, foundations for horror. Cheaper's Creepers, uh, that film is fantastic. It's a great horror film. And um, I'll hold that one up against any of these others. The early ones, uh, the postmodern ones, but Cheaper's Creepers, good film
0: actually haven't seen that one
3: that's actually one of the first horror movies i've i ever saw and i watched it with um like my best friend from high school and i was really scared of that one i was a wimp when i was younger with all this stuff you know like and then you you kind of start getting used to it and then you get really into it i think um but yeah that was one that like really scared me for some reason (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's a true horror film. It deals with something that um, a, attacks our own personal fears and doesn't rely on spectacle, a chainsaw chopping somebody's head off, or goriness, or, or gallons of blood, or things that are more viscerally disgusting, I guess. But something that is more suggested, that works on our imaginations. It's just a really nice, nicely executed uh, film. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. Uh, when they're trapped underground, it's terrific. It's great. It's spooky.
2: That was actually one of the films I asked them to turn off because I was young when I saw it, and I was so scared by the underground scene. I had nightmares of the people in the walls for months.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the early, some of that came from... Um, 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 uh, repulsion. Um and the on Catherine Deneuve walking down that hall when she's having this, these delirious moments and the hands that stretch out the wall and try to grab her. Polanski's film, do you know that? Polanski's film.
0: Uh-huh. Yes, I haven't seen it, but I know the I know the scene you're talking about.
1: Yeah, it's just terrific. He brought the walls alive in that film, or the story brought the walls alive, and that's one of those things that in our imagination, ooh, spooky. That's why maybe Jeepers Creepers is really good because it works on that level.
0: Yeah.
3: Why do you think people are drawn to horror films just to continue this conversation?
1: Well, horror is fear. People are drawn to a lot of things that um, as individuals we think we are unique uh, in our attraction to those things only to find out that they're universal, that everyone has some thing or things that they fear. There are issues that we have psychologically. And so horror films deal in that common area where we are all afraid of those things we don't know about, anything about. You know, What goes bump in the night can be those things. I think we're all drawn to it because when it's projected, when it's Played out on a screen, we know that it can't hurt us, but yet we can involve ourselves, engage ourselves into the what if, and have this experience. What would happen if this was really me experiencing these things? And I can enjoy the idea that I can get scared, I can be afraid, but no, in the end, I'm safe. So I think that's one of the things that draws us to um, like horror. I think we like the idea of seeing the things that we normally don't see, you know, just the opposite of our daily lives. Um, I think just the idea of having um, some kind of emotional um, uh, roller coaster for a little while is always a good thing, whether it's laughter or drama or fear or um, I don't know what else might be in a film uh, exploration. I think there are a number of factors that go into making uh, fear and horror really attractive when they. Are there, when they're all there together, you've got a great composite. You've got this great opportunity to really have a good experience and the audience really digs it. When only one or two are there, it's not as strong and it's um, people wane, their interest just falls to the side. So I-, I can't really say exactly why. There's so many factors that go into it. We'll have to be psychologists here and study deeper about that
0: one. <laughs> yeah.
2: You kind of answered this a little bit, but which filmmakers and movies have had the most influence on you, and not just in the horror genre?
1: Oh, there have been quite a few. Many of the silent film film many of the silent films, have always um, come to mind when I think of something to do when making film. Um, I think back to those early filmmakers and think about what I experienced when I saw those silent films and how those worked, and I try to recreate that or steal from those ideas, but. In a more modern, um, looking at more modern filmmakers, one of the strongest ones was Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. It has a certain structure to it that's just fantastic for me. And I, I studied the film many, many times, watched it many times, just to watch how it all works. Not just the narrative, but the execution of the narrative and how simple it is at times, but yet really filled with layers. Um, you know, there there's scenes and shots in this film that are just remarkably simple in terms of the blocking and the execution. But what is being portrayed and how it works on me, the viewer, is just wonderful. So I think that's a masterpiece. I also really, really enjoy Color of Money by Martin Scorsese, his film, with um, Paul Newman Tom Cruise. Um, it followed or it became kind of a sequel to... Um, Paul Newman's earlier film The Hustler uh, so years later there's kind of a role change in, in, in terms of what the character is doing in the new film but the style of that film and the way it's framed and the universe that the characters go are, are playing in is fantastic that's an excellent film and a great film to study it has all kinds of just real great little tidbits to, to learn and I'll say it this way to steal to put in your own film <laughs> Framings and camera movements and how the the eye lines work and all those technical things that just grab the viewer and make them watch the film. And more so, how the directors used the viewer's understanding of watching films to control the viewer's thoughts and show the viewer exactly what the filmmaker wants to show them. Color of Money does that perfectly. It's just a really smartly done film. Those are kind of the two tops besides many silent films. I'm sorry, they're not horror films. I can't say, oh, yeah, that, that the horror film. That was the one that changed my life. I, I, say, I will say one of the films that did change my life, which was more of a challenge, was that film about the Bigfoot. It was a short about discovering the Bigfoot, allegedly the first photography of a Bigfoot, which I think we all can agree that it's somebody in a hairy suit walking in the woods. But it's a shot in that film uh, where the Bigfoot walks in open space and then looks at the camera and keeps on walking. And when I saw that, I was in university, and all I thought about is, I can do better than that. (laughs) That's that's kind of why I wanted to make films, and and that kind of motivated me. I can do better than that.
0: So now you have to make a Bigfoot film.
1: That would be fun. I know some people that are making a Bigfoot film. They're going to um, southeast Oklahoma. And they're going to um, uh, go on Bigfoot hunts. There's a whole community of people in, in Southeast Oklahoma who are Bigfoot hunters. And so they're making a big film about that. I mean, it's a good size budget and everything else.
3: There's, like, just about every car that parks at um, our old school has a Bigfoot Oklahoma sticker on it. And I'm sure they've been out that in that area. Um, and you, you can see them in North Texas, too. It's It's kind of
1: really funny. <laughs> oh, it's it's great. One of my students years ago made a short documentary as their thesis film on a man who was a leader of a group in southeast Oklahoma who hunted and sought the bigfoot. Is that right? Is that the plural, not big feet, but bigfoot? And I in in watching the film, you laugh and you kind of giggle, thinking these people are kind of a little too fanatical about what they're doing, until at the end of the film, he travels with them on a Bigfoot hunt, and in the middle of the night, he turns off the light on his camera and just listens to the response of a call by this man into space. He calls out to the Bigfoot, and on the soundtrack, you hear the response, far, far away.
3: Wow. And that's when
1: you go, wow. And then the film's over. And you you say, well, maybe it's true.
0: Really going out with a bang.
1: <laughs> yeah, it scares you. It does.
0: Mm-hmm. So what is your favorite aspect of directing feature films? And I know you've done commercials and stuff too, but um, there's a lot of differences between that and doing a film.
1: Well, yeah, there are huge differences between short form um advertising films and a feature full-length narrative, Um, certainly in terms of the depth of exploration of characters and what characters do and the editing styles and certainly the framing and and, um, um, shot usage and, and what you are after. But what I do enjoy still, and it's mutual to both, is the composition of an image. Because if we remove a lot of the... Um, language that actors are given today in films and go back to the silent period approach where behaviors and gestures, movement, placement of objects within the frame, something big or something small or something closer to us, something further away, all combine to create a particular statement or provide information to the viewer about that moment in the film. I think... That's the really cool challenge, and that's the most exciting and fun stuff to do, is to think about how these images can convey a message, and to construct that message in a way that it is exactly what I had in my thoughts, and put those thoughts into the viewer's thoughts. And they perceive and receive that message strongly, so they are then following the story the way you want them to follow it. It's it's just... In some ways, it's kind of authoritative power. It's kind of pushing a point of view onto an audience. But you must do it responsibly and have to say to the audience at the same time, please add your own perspectives. Please challenge my point of view. But if you make the construct, the image, perfectly, it will speak on its own and will say something to a viewer. And that's cool. I think that's just really neat.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I've I've been working as a photographer, and um, it is really interesting how to convey an entire message in just an image. Well, it's pretty it, cool.
1: You know, when we think about it, you go way back to cave people. We're kind of getting off topic here of uh, horror films and good old corn, but the the first you know, nonverbal man would scratch pictures of what they saw, maybe what they experienced, on, on, um, on stones, on cave walls. Uh, those are the ones that we're able to see today. And you have to realize that they wanted others to see what they saw or experience what they saw or experienced. And so that's a composition. It may not be within a landscape, a framing, a parameter, a boundary, but it certainly is something that when you look at it, you say, oh, they were trying to communicate to us. I think we've improved on the the methods in which we make these communications by using boundaries or frames and uh, depths and colors and light and all these other things. But still some of those early ideas that were expressed uh, as visuals work today. They're the foundations.
0: Yeah, and it's cool to think about how, how uh, long that lasts. I mean – through millions of years and we still found some of those images Mm -hmm.
3: storytelling
0: yeah it makes me feel think about which films are still going to be um watched and relevant in a thousand years yeah storytelling is eternal
1: (laughs) It is. You just have to, when you're doing it visually, you have to realize and respect the conventions of what people um, expect uh, to see so that you can communicate to them. So once you can figure out what those rules are, but they're not really rules, but uh, the approaches, then an audience is going to start to receive the message and it's going to be cool. And when you look at the cool films that have been made and the ones that are continuing to be made, there's always really striking images in it that you go home with. You remember them and you think. I mean, I've seen a trailer for West Side Story, the new one, Spielberg's film, that comes comes out uh, later this year. The images in that are completely different than the images I've seen that I know from the 1964 version. They are so powerful and so cool. The use of light and shadow, they stick in my head. So I can't wait to see the film. But yeah, the images are, I mean, that's partly what it's all about. Mostly what it's all about.
2: Well, just the different ways you can present the the human body, like in horror versus musical, and one is so like meant to be beautiful and breathtaking, and the other is breathtaking in an entirely different way. It's just fascinating how just changing like one or two things, or even color or circumstances, just changes the story entirely.
1: Oh yeah, terrific. One of the things that most people don't do in in making film today is they're they're not they're not responding to the old psychology of proxemics, how we stand next to one another, you know, how close we are to each other, and the, the messages that distance between people. Um, um, I don't know how that avenue works. You know, when horror films will use the, the personal space a lot more, they don't use the big panoramic space like in a Western where the cowboy is alone in the big out west uh, Monument Valley. The horror films will use the close, putting the viewer really close to the actor by close-ups on the actor or medium close-ups on the actor. Where in the, the older days, in some of the poorer films that we watch today, the event is recorded, but there's no sense of how the, the viewer is um, in relationship with what's going on on the screen, how close that activity on screen is horror gets right in your face in the proximics or in that intimate and personal space. Those two areas works much, much better.
0: And I think that's also like the draw of um, film versus theater, at least for me personally, I like to get up in someone's face. <laughs> I think that's really cool.
1: And theater is, you know, theater is wonderful for what it does, but it does just for the most part, lend itself to the one proscenium and wherever you sit in the room is your vantage point of the activity on the on the stage that proscenium on a film when we start exercising proxemics and we start recognizing the viewer and the screen as the two elements and we can push them closer together oh man whole different value set of emotions
2: well it's funny what you were saying kyla about like Liking film better because you can get more up in the performances phase because I was an acting student for a while and most actors say the opposite where they like live theater because then they can see who's watching them more clearly. So it's it's kind of interesting to see that dynamic change and fluctuate over time.
1: It's true. The actors, I mean, I know lots of actors and many do um, um, put live performance over recorded event. Many of them put the live performance over the recorded event because there's more control in their part. It's not necessarily a selfish thing. It's just the fact that they create something in that particular moment at that time that can't be changed, where when you record it, we can alter and manipulate, and we can do all kinds of things with that performance as filmmakers that change it into something completely different. We can make the good guy into the bad guy. But when the actors say, I like to see the audience, that's terrific because they can watch their reaction to what they're doing. But now what if that audience was even closer to them so they could smell that audience and they could hear them breathing? It would change the actor's performance completely. And that's the cool stuff that cinema does because those close-ups. Put that performance right on top of us, as opposed to a wide shot of a musical that we enjoy the dancing and we say, ooh, isn't that cool kinesiology or movement? But mm, it doesn't have that same emotional sledgehammer that the close-up does that only film can provide. So as, as filmmakers, you should start to think that way. Where is the important part of the scene that I need to just push into the audience's face, so that they feel the experience of this particular character at that particular moment of the story?
3: How has your career changed since shooting *Children of the Corn*?
1: Well, I I was really fortunate. I'm, i I just, I've been very lucky because of that film. Um, You, anyone who makes a film and it shows great success financial success, box office success gets opportunities to do more. And the longer you make successful films, the more you make successful films, the more films that will be sent to you or the doors are open to make more. So it's kind of a cornucopia. So I was very lucky at a young age to make a film that got an audience that made money, that has sustained itself through a uh, a number of sequels and and has lived a long life, almost 40 years now in the public and, and social cultures. So um, it really changed everything. Um, I was making TV commercials at the time, which I really enjoyed and, and didn't want to leave. But after the success of the film, uh, the calls started And the the stories were at my doorstep. Do you want to make this film? you want to make that film? In other words, come make money for us, the companies were saying. You made money for that company. We know you can do that. We'd like to make some money, so do it for us. So you're kind of pulled into other opportunities. And so I had lots of opportunities, and I started to take advantage of those. And it got me deeper into that, which I really sought, which was to make theatrical products. So it changed my life in the way that it gave me more opportunity to make more films and introduced me to a huge number of people that today I still talk to, people that through that family bonding Experience of making a film, that idea of contribution, and everyone's in it together to do the same thing. You um, are able to have relationships that last a long, long time. And so now, when I talk about making another film with my friends, my Hollywood friends that are still active, uh, extremely active, yeah, yeah, let's go do it. Come on, we'll go do it. So it not only builds a career for you, and and gives you that kind of opportunity to go do more things in your career, gives you these great relationships. So life changes in a lot of good ways. Um, it led me to um, thinking maybe I should share what I know or show others how to do it and it got me into academics. And uh, that was a good thing. So it's it's been a really good, um, I don't know, motivating force, a first act twist, We'll call it that because <laughs> that's kind of the way it's played out. Um, and I, I really applaud it. I've, I've been very fortunate.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I, I'm i definitely excited to see um, what kinds of people that I'm going to meet and uh, all the crazy projects coming up. So hearing you talk about it just it makes me look forward to it even more.
1: Oh, it's it's so much fun the person that you work with on one film that did one particular job will go off and three years later they'll have done a number of things and they remember what you did and how much fun you all had together and they will say I need somebody that can do what I recall you did so they call you and they find you and you talk about that with them their opportunity and you join up with them again and you have a whole new set of experiences and the pyramid gets bigger you meet more people through them before you know it you think back wow I got to go here and I got to do this and I traveled here to do that And I met all these other people who are now doing these other things. Um, And even the people that um, you worked with who maybe once or twice you worked with them and you stayed friendly, now you know their children. And your children know their children. And It's funny. My kids meet people that um, I worked with and the person they met says, my dad worked with your dad. My dad are you so-and-so because my dad talks about your dad that kind of stuff so it's not just you you're starting to impact a lot of people
2: yeah that's cool that is all right what is a misconception about filmmaking that you wish people would understand especially in horror
1: This is not a hard question to answer. And it's actually one of the things that I strongly believe in. One of the bigger misconceptions about making film is that you're making a film for a particular point of view. um, And that uh, once you've done that, everything is great. You've got your message out the misconception I'm talking about is the fact that you're not being a responsible filmmaker. You're not thinking about the message you're putting out. And you're not thinking about how the audience will respect and respond to that message. Hopefully they'll respond in the ways that you hope they will respond. But many times the message you put out, that which you are paid for and that which is completed and out there is a globally received message that can cause some bad outcomes. I mean, I thought about the film I made, Children of the Corn. And after making it, I was not really thinking about how the audience would receive it other than, oh boy, I hope they enjoy this horror film and it's, it makes a lot of money and I get another chance to make another film. I was surprised to get fan mail through the studio, people asking me really bizarre questions. I never thought about the audience taking some of what was in the film as serious and real. And they did. And I felt this, this, this shame. I was not responsible for the way they took the film. And therefore, they started to behave in a manner that I never expected. And it was not a manner that I thought would be correct. It's just not right. So you go out and you make a film. And you have to realize how it's going to globally impact your audience. You can't have people doing things that are morally incorrect, thinking no one will replicate or mirror that. Of course they will. They'll see it in a film and they'll think that's cool and they'll go do it. So we have to be far more responsible in what our media messages are. We have to think about how the reception of our media messages will be taken. We have to think about the cultures and the differences in cultures that uh, take these messages on in different ways. What we say is accepted one way in England, but it's not accepted the same way when you go to South Africa or the Congo or to Peru. Cultures are different. People think of things differently. And so uh, I think that's one of the big misconceptions of making films that, oh, I got this great story and that's all there is to it. We have to be far more responsible and think more critically about the outcomes of what we make and make sure that what we're doing is not driving people in the wrong way, particularly when we cross cultures.
0: Mm, That's a really good point.
1: It's a tough one because what it puts for you what what it puts in place for you is a dilemma. You will be given an opportunity to make a film and it's a great idea, but when you start thinking critically about the potential outcome of it, you may say, well this is not a good thing that should be talked about and shown to people and although I don't want to be a censor of um free speech or whatever, I don't think I want to get involved with being the responsible party that brings this forward into others' um, thinkings, So I'll turn it down. Okay, maybe I won't work for two two years because I turn it down. So that's the dilemma. Should I do it? Should I not do it? Should I make a living? Should I not make a living? Should I, Or should I not pass on bad things to other people and just forego the consequences? That's what you get faced with. Well, when, years ago when I was making commercials, um, tobacco and beer were being... Uh, questioned as products that maybe should not be on television. Eventually, they were taken off television in in a lot of places. And a lot of my friends would not, even though the offers to work were absolutely terrific, like, we'll pay you a $1,000 an hour if you help us make this TV commercial for cigarettes. They'd say, no, I'm not going to do it because it's an unhealthy product. So I'm going to think about others, and I'm not going to contribute to your wealth and the ill of other people. Uh, Alcohol products were another thing that a lot of people wouldn't get involved with. They wouldn't make beer commercials or whiskey commercials. Uh, Lots of those things are gone now. But if you don't believe in it, why should you do it? Something else will come your way. Things will be fine.
0: I like that because
2: so often we hear about the the commercialist side of filmmaking where, you know, you have to sell your morals down the river. But it's really nice to hear that 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 is not true for a lot of people like across time. That's really, it's kind of positive to hear.
1: No, I think it, it, it's more mature people are in that area of thinking. The younger people who have the uh, aggressive desire and the, and, and the passion to make a film will take it on. There's always mm-hmm. someone who'll say, yes, I'll go do that. Yeah, I'll show um, women getting their heads cut off by evilly brutal toxic males. Yeah, I'll do all that. That's fine. They don't think about what they're doing because it's a, it's a leap to get into making a film. You have to think about it a little bit, if not a lot, before you say yes.
0: All right. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this with us and uh, taking time out of your day.
1: Well, it's not time out of my day. I love talking about the film, particularly my films. You know, I mean, yeah, talking about me. But did you see my last picture? You know, that kind of stuff. I'm always happy to do that, being the windbag. But um, I'm I, I love talking about what you are curious about. And kind of bouncing the ball back and forth. So thank you for inviting me to do this. I'll come back anytime. We'll talk about my next film on your next episode at some point.
0: Yes, I would love that. Yeah. Should we
1: should we do an exclusive um exclusive interview for the next one? You get the yes. first one if there is a next one?
0: Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I will definitely snap that up. Well I was going to say too, if there if you have any uh projects or anything that you'd like to promote, feel free. You're on air, so uh, any message that you'd like to get out there, feel free.
1: I wish I could say concretely that there are two or three that I'm going to do. There are a couple that I'm shopping right now that I'm really excited about. One in particular that I will not let anyone else direct but me. Um, The others I have written and I can let someone else do those if I stay part of the production process. But uh, until I actually have a firm deal, I'm not going to say that because it's always Hollywood to promote something and it never happens. And then people don't think kindly of you. They think you are just full of manure. But when I do have something, I certainly will. But I do have a couple that I really, really want to make. And I'm hoping in the next year I'm going to say, yes, I'm making this one and you'll be able to see them.
0: Yeah, fingers crossed. And um, if you need some production assistance,
1: you
0: know, you know where to any? find us. Do <laughs> you
1: know any? you you'll travel is that what you say well good we'll make a deal
0: excellent (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah thank you again and um hey happy october happy halloween
1: yeah it is it's our time of the year poor people yeah Uh, the outlanders
0: (laughs) that's right
1: out there it's our time of the year Well, i hope you all have a good halloween and have a good festive time in the next couple of days the weather's turning cold Here in Colorado, everything looks beautiful. The trees are great. My wife and I have been talking about the aspens and the color of the aspens up here. Oh, it's gorgeous.
0: Oh, they're beautiful. Oh, thank you again, Fritz. It's always a pleasure.
1: And um,
0: to all of our listeners out there, I hope that uh, you enjoyed this interview and uh, hearing some good advice and good stories about filmmaking. And as always, may your nightmares be plentiful.